Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mastering engineer John Greenham. But first of all, let's talk about something new in social media, and that's something called attention economics. Now, as we all know, there's lots of media sources, and they're all competing for our attention. As a result, our attention span has really decreased over the years, and Microsoft recently did a study and found out the average attention span decreased from 12 seconds to about 8 seconds, which is less than a goldfish, believe it or not. What's happening now is tech companies really aren't competing against one another as much as they're competing with time spent on different media sources. Now, one of the things here that's really interesting is the fact that listening to music really requires no engagement at all. Very much unlike gaming or watching videos, for instance, which requires all of your attention. That being said, we've been finding out that attention to listening to music has actually been growing with streaming audio. So in other words, when people stream music, they actually pay more attention than when they listen to it in other forms. Now, many think one of the reasons for this is the fact that they're paying for it. And on Spotify, for instance, if you're paying for it, they found that you're more likely to pay attention. The other thing that was really interesting is they found that the average user on Spotify listens to an average of 41 artists per week which is pretty amazing. Really what's happening is there are more people that are listening and discovering on streaming networks than just about anywhere else right now. And that's a really good thing for music. Now, all that being said, it's been discovered that artists really need to build the attention span with their fans. They have to get their fans' attention. And they have to keep that attention as much as possible. That's why social media, that's why YouTube, that's why being online, that's why just about anything that reaches out and engages one of your customers, one of your fans, is really important. The reason why is once upon a time, you concentrated on making a sale. And most of those sales occurred in the first week or two after the release happened. And after that, the attention, the sales, everything dropped off a cliff. Today, that's not the case. And we've been finding that it may take as long as two years before a release might get its legs. So you have to keep up the attention span with the audience in the meantime. It's really important to cultivate that. Yeah, you have to work on new music and you have to keep on releasing new things, but you can't ignore older releases because oftentimes they're actually going to increase in attention as they go along. And as we know, the attention span of your audience right now is everything. If you have any questions or comments, send in a questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. The second edition of my social media promotion for musicians handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. It's the manual for marketing yourself, your band, and your music online, and it covers how to use virtually every important online platform for musical promotion. Also, check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Now, another interesting thing that I came across this last week was the music of psychopaths. <laughs> What is a psychopath? Well, it's a person suffering from a chronic mental disorder that has abnormal or violent social behavior. 
And we all know a number of these people, and a lot of them wind up in jail. That being said, we all have a little bit of psychopathy within us. And NYU wanted to study how much we each have. So they began to interview people, and these were mostly average people that they were interviewing, right up to, again, hardened criminals. One of the criteria was a type of music that they listened to. And wow, that was really interesting. People in the study were asked about 100 songs, most of them unfamiliar to them, and they range from the latest top hits on Billboard to classical recordings and everything in between. <laughs> and what they found out was pretty amazing. For instance, some of the songs that scored highest on the psychopathy level was Eminem's Lose Yourself, which was the absolute highest, followed by Blackstreet's No Diggity, and closely after that was Justin Bieber's What Do You Mean? <laughs> On the bottom of the scale that showed pretty much no level of psychopathy was Dire Straits' Money for Nothing, which is the absolute lowest, a country song Wayward Wind, and the Knack's My Sharona. The study also worked backwards, where if they asked a person about what songs they liked, it pretty much corresponded on the level of psychopathy that they had. <laughs> so what's interesting about this is if someone can tell that, sometimes you're better off not to let anyone know exactly the songs that you really like or don't like because <laughs> it could be profiling you on something that you might not want to be profiled on. Mastering engineer John Greenham has won three Grammys and has been nominated for six others. His client list includes work for Katy Perry, Mary J. Blige, Ice Cube, Jennifer Lopez, Sam Smith, and many more. We spoke at length about mastering via phone from his studio in the Los Angeles area. Can you give me some of your background, please? I mean, how did you get into the business? Yeah, well, so um, I... Uh got into the business in San Francisco in uh, sort of, uh, let's see, like the late 80s is when I first started at Rocket Lab in San Francisco, which was uh, actually the first, the first, uh, you know, CD mastering outfit in the Bay Area. And we had a, a studodiaxis system do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I've forgotten about it, actually. So, <laughs> so it used to take um, about, well, you'd have to sit there with the client for about sort of, you know, if you if you had a 17-second fade, it would take about, oh, I don't know how long, it seemed like a long time, maybe 30, 40 seconds to write the fade. You know, so when you were uh, writing the fades, it could take... You could be there for a while. It'd be several hours working in the phase. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was, uh, then, then, then we had a sonic system, uh, sonic solutions, you know, the early systems, that was a bit better, although pretty dense as well. Um, so that, yeah, I worked with, uh, Paul Stubblebein. Oh yeah. He's kind of like, yeah. So Paul's like sort of, you know, one of the biggest gearheads ever, basically. And he had the, uh, well, after a while, anyway, we got involved with um, with uh, Keith Johnson of Pacific Microsonics. And so we had those, you know, the Model 1 and then the, <clears throat> the Model 2 and so forth, which were ludicrously expensive in those days. And so that's kind of how I got into it through Paul, who, who you know, Paul had, he always had the right 
was like, yeah, you know, he's a bit of an audiophile, so he had like all the, the special MIT cables and the Tindy Parabuccini, you know, the EAR limiters and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Electronics. Yeah. But previous to that, though, you're a musician, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I played, uh, played music in England for a while before I came over here. And, uh, and then sort of, yeah, you know, had children and sort of moved over to the other side of the glass because musician's lifestyle is not very appropriate and married and you have kids really. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. You moved to San Francisco first, right? From the UK. What brought you there? Well, you know, the weather mostly, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I, I, I came over, uh, for a vacation one, one winter and then, uh, went back to England and I never was able to forget, you know, being there for Christmas and, you know, the weather was beautiful. And, uh, then if you compare that to the way it is in England, you know, you've got sort of five months of gray, you know, rain and sleet and hail and stuff, so. So yeah, I'd say that was mainly it, mainly to do with the weather. Well, it was the same for me. I came from Pennsylvania where we have harsh winters. And uh, when I first came to California, there was nine straight months of beautiful days. And I can remember going to the beach on Christmas and it was 85 degrees and thinking how wonderful it was. I know. So yeah, and actually the weather in San Francisco is not that great, really. So now that I've moved down here, I'm really... uh, Wild. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So have you always been in L.A. since you came out here then? Yes, uh, I came out in the early 80s. You know, I would never dream of going back, or anywhere else for that matter. No. I would have actually probably moved down here years ago. I mean, my wife was from Southern California, and she wasn't into it. But uh, I remember I came down and actually sort of interviewed with Bernie, at his place in the old place before he moved yeah, uh, to where he is now and kind of was like kind of on set to go and, you know, do, you know, QC there or something like that. But um, unfortunately that never happened. So kind of a shame because uh, the new place is really nice. Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely. So when you came down here, you started work for Infrasonic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And does that mean you were cutting a lot of vinyl? No, actually, I was not involved in the vinyl part of it. They had, you know, a couple of guys that worked there that just cut lacquers and day long. Although I have done that at one time or another, but it's the kind of thing that you, as you know, you kind of have to do that every day. You know, I didn't get involved in that part of it, although that is a big part of the, you know, what they do. Um, but yeah, Infrasonic, you know, I met, uh, I, I became friends with Jeff, I, you know, I met him at ADS shows and stuff like that. So yeah. Both guys, they invited me to come down and work there. So, yeah, I was there for, well, until, yeah, two years ago, basically. And then since then, I've been working at my house here in Los Angeles, um, which I basically did because I'm sort of a, I'm actually, you know, I've been a Buddhist meditator for many years. So I, I finally decided that it's time that I, get a place where I can work and do my meditation practice and not sort of, you know, be able to do what I want. So that's, uh, 
That's basically the idea behind that. Well, that's kind of interesting. Do you meditate that much that it gets in the way of a mastering project? Or do you do it at certain times of the day? Yeah, no, I, I, I practice every day in the morning. And um, sometimes I'll do, you know, two or three sessions a day. So I'll do my meditation and then I'll come down and look at some emails and uh, figure out what I'm going to do and get stuff set up and maybe listen to a few things. And then I'll do another session and I'll come back and do some work and, and so forth like that. So I, I, my method of working is, is like that, actually. I, I tend to do short periods of time and, and then uh, go away and think about it. You know, I find it works better like that than just sitting for sort of eight hours in a row trying to hash it out, you know? Well, that seems to be the way of the world now, the studio world, mm. in that it, thanks to workstations, it's so much easier to do that. And before we were forced to working on a project until it was finished. And now you can work on it, put it away, come back again, whenever. So I, I think that goes across the board anymore. It, it actually is kind of, uh, I feel like I'm working on it when I'm not working on it, if you know what I mean. I, I, I like that aspect of it. Like sometimes I'll be actually not working on it or listening to it and I'll suddenly understand something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, or come up with an idea of something that, you know, I should try this or I should do that, you know? So, you know, I have to say that Buddhism seems to be the ideal philosophy for the music business. And I'm surprised that more, more people <laughs> don't actually practice it because considering the, the, the strife and everything involved in the business, it would just help everybody cool out, you know, chill out so much more. Yeah, no, that's right. Oh, well, I think, um, you know, meditation, I always say meditation is, is one of the most popular things that no one really wants to do, you know, because it's um, that's sort of an English humor, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But, um, it, because it's kind of, because it's actually difficult um, to do, you know, consistently. I mean, it, it, it took me many years to develop a daily practice. It's kind of like yoga or anything else for that matter, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's not, uh, you know, there there are, are days when you, but there there are days when it's it, it's easy, and there are days when it's really quite difficult. Even though you've been doing it for a long time, so it's not easy to do. But I think everyone recognizes that it would be a good idea, you know. Yeah. To do it, I think everyone knows that. But yeah, it goes pretty well. Um, I think the two things go pretty well together. I mean, I've been. Uh, mastering for a long time and so I it doesn't really it's not something that I need to really think about a lot you know I don't I don't necessarily have it like I'm not thinking about it all the time it's 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 kind of you know so so it doesn't sort of it's not like um, I imagine being a lawyer or something like that where you'd have a lot of things to think about all the time you know, your work would be would consume pretty much all of your time. I, I don't find that it's like that. So. The thing about mastering too is you're working on one project and then it's gone, and yeah. it's it's for a relatively short period in, in time. Where if you're recording or producing or you know engineering a, an album, mixing an album, it, it's you have it for a longer period, and as a result, you're thinking about it more. But mastering, it's mm -hmm. kind of it's different because it's in and out, so to speak. 
I, I totally agree. In fact, that's my, I, I, you know, I've done all the parts of making records in the past. And um, what I found particularly with recording um, and producing is that um, it just takes over your entire life. I mean, you, you, the time you're in the studio uh, recording, you're usually, you know, you're not able to even return phone calls or do anything. It's usually all-consuming or at least that was my experience on it. Well, so mastering is actually good because you can, you can have a life as well. You know. <laughs> well, I'm in the middle of a studio project right now that I'm producing, and I have to say it has consumed me, and today's a day off, mm. but it's not really because I've been working anyway, and when I'm not working, I'm thinking mm. about it. So, yes, it's, <laughs> mm. it's one of those things. Yeah, it is. It's very, it is. So where, where about do you work? Where's your place? I'm in Burbank, California, although I don't have a studio that I can track in, so I go to other places to, to track, and uh, I just mix where I'm at. Let, let's get a little geeky for a second. Do you have a philosophy about mastering, uh, an approach that you use? Yeah, um, I mean, I basically, um, I've got it down to a pretty simple collection of stuff these days. I just use, um, for the last sort of four or five years, I've been using... Uh, Digital Audio Denmark uh, converted like an AX24, which is an eight-channel box. So I just go out of, you know, one and two, back into three and four, and then monitor through five and six, and um, just loop back into the workstations through, you know, I just use a couple pieces, basically, which is a, a Lizia Alpha compressor and a, a Sontek EQ, and... Um, and that's about it. And they, the combination of those things and um, uh, the CubeTech plugins, which I use with Sequoia, uh, you know, on a Windows 7 range. And uh, that's about it. So it's pretty simple. You know, there's only one. I used to have these things that, you know, I used to use like a sonic system and a pyramid system. And then you have to, you know, different sample rate things going on and you have different clocks and <laughs> Yeah. Now I just have now I just have one box, which is the master clock for the computer, and I I find that everything is it's kind of like using a console to to make a record. You know, everything has this same kind of sound to it. So I think it's I think it it, it sort of works. I mean, I, I you know I I've spent years geeking out over different clocks and you know clocking systems and stuff like that. But it's a digital audio Denmark box is pretty good. You basically, um, it, uh, you know, so, so my sort of system is to, you know, hit the A to D on the way back in, and then it has a certain sound to it, um, which is a good sound, which usually, well, people obviously like, otherwise I wouldn't be in business. Um, and, uh, it, it's kind of a warm sounding thing. And, uh, you know, it gets a little crackly if you hit it too hard. So it's a question of um, just finding the right spot for whatever it is. And that's different for different kinds of music. But it, it, it's generally, I've, I've never had much luck using limiters, really. I'm not, I don't, you know, they, they always end up doing stuff that I don't like. Yeah. And uh, I recently actually was trying. Is this is this too much geekery? Or no, is this okay. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I was recently trying a uh, uh, what is that one called? It's um, 
that I downloaded and uh, uh, it's it's there's so many things going on when you when you use a limiter that it's I find it very difficult in mastery I find it's really it really pays to have stuff that's tried and tested that it's worked for you many times in the past and and not mess with it because you know it it takes anyway for me it takes it'll take me you know, two or three months to really understand what something's doing. Oh, yes, the fab filter. Oh, yes. Uh, limiter. Yeah, and it's got a lot of this kind of like you know, channel linking thing with it, and it's the kind of thing that you can really, you can really kind of go astray with it if you look at Yeah. <laughs> and you can think it sounds good, and then you listen to it off, which is why I generally... Uh, these days, I'll take like a couple or two or three days to work on them just to make sure I'm not, you know, I haven't sort of fallen in love with something that isn't that great, so to speak. You know, I I've used the CubeTech plugins now for um, just for getting a little additional loudness if necessary. I've used those things for about ten years now, and um, they always they never let you down. You know, they're always the loudness maximizer thing doesn't do too much. Didn't change things that much. It's kind of anyway. I, I, I just kind of got a collection of stuff that works. And uh, my experience is generally when I stray very far from that and start moving other things, and then when I get into trouble. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you: Are you asked to really smash things, make things really, you know, as loud as possible? Yeah, well, see that that that's an interesting question, actually, because you know the answer is yes for for, for quite a few years. I mean, that, that that is a requirement of the job that has been for for a long time. As a matter of fact, it really is always that way. I remember uh, actually Bernie saying how you know whatever the release format is, you know whatever it has been, you know when it was vinyl. There was always competition to see who could get the loudest record. Like, you know, people wanted their stuff to be louder. So it's like how much you can get onto the the lacquer. And uh, then CDs came on. It wasn't any different. You know, people people want that. But the interesting thing that's happened recently, and um, you, I'm sure you know about this, of course, but it's uh, the thing about these algorithms in uh, Spotify and YouTube and so forth, uh, leveling the sound, yes, which is a very interesting development. And 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 actually, you know, I first came across it about two years ago, and I remember I would, you know, mention it to producers that I worked with, and they'd say, "Oh, you know, that's interesting. Now, can you make it really loud?" You know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, but. Lo and behold, in the last, I would say the last sort of three or four months, actually, people have started talking about that. And actually, it's it's becoming a thing now. It's becoming a thing, which is really a nice development, actually, because, I mean, you know, I suppose that if there's going to be any situation in which 
things are going to be compared digital file to digital file. You, you, people don't want their stuff to be that much quieter than anything else, you know? Yeah. So there's still going to be that competition, but, um, you know, it, 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 I think it, it seems to me that you can sort of, there's maybe about a two or three DB, uh, range there where you can, you can go below what would have been acceptable sort of even last year or the year before. And, you know, not, it, it, it's that last sort of, it's really, it's always been my feeling about it is that last, you know, one or two DB is just, it's always been a little bit too loud. And that's what we've all done. <clears throat> you know, it's trying to get a half pint into, I mean, a pint into a half pint container. Yeah. It's always kind of felt like that to me. And, uh, so, and I mean, we've got much better at it, but still, you know, if you, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just a little too much. And now I'm finding that, um, I actually don't have to do that, which is really nice. Actually, it's kind of a, that's a really nice development, you know, based on the fact that, that, uh, really, I guess Spotify is pretty much, or, 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 you know, streaming has emerged as the platform of choice for people to listen to music on really. Um, Are you asked to provide a dedicated master for streaming? I, I not really. No, I mean that that hasn't come up. I mean, I have suggested that to people. I suppose if people had enough of a budget that you, you could do different masters for all the different. As a matter of fact, you know, the, the like there are differences on the various platforms. I believe that um, YouTube is slightly different treatment than Spotify, for example. So yeah, ideally it would be really interesting to uh, sort of geek out and find out what works best. I, I think, um, in fact, it's almost like the the old days of radio. You know, when you would, you know, master something and then listen on the radio, and you you, you would realize, oh yeah, it's, it's too much low end. You know. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would kind of hear the compressor kind of pulling the whole thing down when the bass came in. And then you learned like how that works, you know. So maybe it's kind of a similar thing to um, Spotify. Although I'm sort of in the early stages of looking at that. And so far, I haven't really, honestly, you, you know, it might be actually that um, what we're trying to do is get stuff louder than everybody else on Spotify by making it quieter, for example. Oh, so there's more dynamic range. Yes, there's more dynamic range, and maybe that makes it sound louder or something. I, don't, I I'm not sure. I, I, I I'm as I said in the early stages of looking at that, but, um, but at any rate, it, it's nice to have a uh, a new development after years of kind of you know hammering on it stuff. I well, think. Well, you know Glenn Meadows, right, from Nashville, mastering engineer. I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he does a series of lectures. And one of the things that he demonstrates is by having more dynamic range, it actually sounds louder and he'll play mm -hmm. two tracks side by side and he'll say, okay, which is the loudest one? And everyone in the audience will pick the one that has more dynamic range. That's actually softer when it's all said and done, you know, in terms of, of levels, meter levels mm -hmm. anyway. You know, it's the old thing of mixing with your eyes and forgetting to use your ears. And it's the same thing with, master levels where you begin to look at the meters and say, okay, wait, 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 you know, it's, it's not loud enough, but yet it's plenty loud if you just listen. 
Yes, I do know what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, I think basically that, first of all, everything is different. Every song is different. Every type of, everything is different. Now, and that's the reason why we're able to keep doing this for years and years and years is that everything is different. You can't bring what you what, what worked on the last project is not necessarily going to work on this one, even if it's a similar kind of music, you know? Yeah. So I think some things do, you know, there's, there's, it's all about this kind of, um, you know, game staging thing. And uh, you sort of feel it to the point where it, it and some things sound good if they're flattened out a bit, you know, that's how they're meant to be. That's how they're meant to sound. Other things, not so much. What I've noticed over the years is, I mean, if if you don't, um, if you, uh, you know, from from my days of working with Paul, who, you know, we used to geek out and listen to the stuff in these giant audio file systems that cost, you know, $750,000. And, <laughs> and uh, stuff is very dynamic and not at all compressed and recorded organically and, and you know, very high quality stuff. It sounds really great on a system like that. Yeah. But if you play it on laptop speakers, it's just going to sound dull and, and uninteresting. You know, it's just going to sound weak, actually. So there is, you know, it, it uh, and this is the thing. I mean, you're, you're mastering for it. Well, you know, you're mastering for it. Right? You know, laptop speakers, a lot of people are just listening on their laptops and no bass. And so forth, you know, all the different things in the car, which is a bit mysterious. Car thing is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Still. <laughs> still. Yeah. I, I, I've never been one of these people. Some people I know that uh, work on something, I'm going to take my car and listen to it. Then I'll know exactly what's going on. That's never been me. Yeah. I've never been able to do that. I have no idea what's going on. I listen to it in the car and I go, okay, well, there's a, there's a lot of bass. You know, I don't know what yeah, else yeah. is there. Too much bass, I don't know. Um, but some people have a very fine, finely tuned idea of the, what's happening with their car stereo. I don't know how they do it. But uh, Getting back to what you are talking about before, when you said playing back a large dynamic range and having them sound really good on big speakers, I've noticed that if you go to AES and you walk around and you go to all the speaker demos, they're always playing songs that have wide dynamic range. And everybody's always going, wow, that sounds great. Wow, that sounds great. And they never play anything that's current because it's so smashed and it doesn't sound nearly as good on those speakers. But you're right. In order to really make it work on smaller speakers that everybody's listening to, you almost have to go that way. Yes, you do. Yeah. So it's some... You know, that that's kind of, uh, yeah, I, I, well, it's definitely a consideration in mastering because, I mean, I, I suppose what happened for me is I had kids, you know, and I then when they, uh, that, I guess when they started listening to a lot of music, that was the sort of arrival of the MP3 and iTunes and all that. So I sort of saw that and I, I saw how they approached it. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it well, the first thing you notice about you know people that age, like young teens, people who who are after all the major consumers of music, really, um, is that they they'll, they'll listen to it for about you know it it may have like sort of 
I don't know, two or three seconds. And it's not particularly interesting. <laughs> the, the arrow button gets pressed and you're on to the next thing. You yeah. Know? So yeah. it kind of has to come out of the, the there's, there's like, it, it kind of has to, you know, say something right off the bat. And that's kind of a feature of, uh, I think, the, the way that people listen to music nowadays. Although I guess the vinyl thing has kind of changed that a little bit. And cassettes, too. Cassettes are making a comeback. <laughs> oh, you, I know, I can't figure. Yeah. Was it like 1.7 IPS, I think? 1, 1. 1.7 inches per second. I've, I've always like been amazed at how good they sound when you look at what's going on in there. You know, I used to teach a mastering class at a school down here, and this is, again, in the 80s. And I would take the class once a year down to a major duplicator just outside of Los Angeles. And this was when cassettes were really big. And they used to go and pick a random cassette off the line and go into into the QC room that they had and play it back. And I was always amazed at how great it actually sounded. But then you realize that they're playing it back on super optimized gear, which no one else in the world will ever have. But it just goes to show you that it is possible for that format to actually sound good. It just the playback systems that everybody's using never are optimized, so therein lies the problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the Nakamichi stuff is that they have those decks that they have some of those things and really good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember. I noticed that. Well, like most mastering engineers, you do a wide variety of music. I'm wondering if your approach is different depending on the style of music that you're mastering. Mm. Well, I think that um, basically music, and this is something actually that it took me a long time before I actually realized this. I'm sort of ashamed to say, but um, it's, it's really what it really is about is it's about the groove because music is really about making people move if people want to dance to it and so forth like that that's most of what it is get your head bobbing or something when you're listening to it on your headphones or whatever so um, that's mostly what I pay attention to honestly because I became aware at a certain point that I think that's when I started working on a lot of rap music and in 808 there's no that's the whole kind of rhythm section, really. That, that That's the kind of pulse. And I started noticing that if you don't pay attention to that, in other words, if you're using some kind of compression or something and you're changing the sort of, uh, well, you know, the attack and delay or whatever that is of the, of the uh, 808, then the whole thing doesn't work properly. And it's just easy to really screw that up in mastering. It's just making stuff loud and compressing and never limiting it. And so I, I think that that's, no matter what kind of music it is, I think that that's when I, when I have worked on something and then I am comparing it to the mix that they sent, the first thing I listen to is to see if the pulse is still there or if I've kind of screwed it up somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully what I've done is I've made it better, actually. Yeah. I've made it more exciting to listen to. I mean, that is possible. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm looking at. And then um, 
But there are various things with different kinds. Of, I personally find the most difficult music to work on is, you know, stuff with like massive guitars and bass and drums and vocals. I mean, that that's always it's pretty challenging because you, the slightest thing that you do sort of drastically affects, especially when you get the guitars on, you know, both sides and stuff. It's it's really hard to kind of it gets away from you in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's. Those mixes are very dense, so that's why. Yeah. Um, and then Latin music, for example, uh, which I have done quite a lot of, I actually, that was an interesting learning process. And what I realized about that is that you have to be really careful. Um, it seems really bright, but that's just because there's a lot of like percussion instruments and stuff like that. And if you start adding high end to it, some shaker, some little shaker thing that will suddenly pop out and change the groove. Uh, there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole sort of little, there's a whole ecosystem of percussion instruments working together. You know, my friend Omar Sosa explained to me, he said, look, it's like a bunch of guys on the street corner talking to each other, you know, and that's really <laughs> what it is. It's like the same stuff, this person saying that. So it all kind of works together like a conversation so that's an interesting. Um, so yeah, there are, there are different things for different kinds of music. That you definitely have to be aware of. Um, okay. You know, rap music. Yeah. No. Don't. Is there a particular characteristic of the mixes that you get in that you wish would be better? Is there constantly mixes that you get in that you're thinking, ah, oh, I wish they wouldn't have done this, or you know, is there one problem? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is there one overall problem that you see on mixes that come into you if, if they have a problem? Well, I, I feel like the main, the main issue, especially these days is the spaces that the things are recorded in. If they're actually, you know, like drums, especially if people haven't recorded them in a studio or in a proper space, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's a big factor. Um, I suppose mixing goes, you know, I tend, I've done a fair amount of mixing and I, I tend to be pretty non-judgmental about because you don't know what the person's working with, you know, and that, but you can listen to it and you can say, why is that like that? But when you actually started looking at the mix, you might find out <laughs> why it was like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they didn't have much to work with or or something, but I, I um, uh, yeah. So I generally just, um, I, I try to, um, I just do the best I can with what people send. And I, I don't, sometimes I'll send, sometimes I'll make suggestions and, and, and say, well, look, maybe, I mean, but it's usually pretty simple. Like the vocal isn't loud enough, but like, you know, the vocal is kind of getting drowned out at this particular point or something. You know, yeah. usually like that. But, but generally, I, I don't know. Um, of course, there are a wide variety of, um, you know, people mix their own stuff these days. Which I, I don't it's not necessarily a great idea, but um I, I would say though that overall the main the thing that I learned many years ago actually when I was working on this record that <clears throat> was uh, this band that were quite successful. They were doing a lot of touring and, and um they wanted to redo their first album that they had made because it was a, it it basically was horrible. I mean it came out sounding really bad. The guy that was producing it 
got called away on some big project and left his intern in charge of it. And it, was, it sounded dreadful. So me and this producer friend of mine, he, he remixed it, I remastered it, and it sounded just totally different, you know, so much better. And then I was looking at the band and I was just looking around on the internet and I came across this review of this horrible sounding record from uh, NME in England. And it said, you know, this is one of the best rock albums of the year. And I was completely thunderstruck. I was like, how? It it really sounded horrible. And I, I'm not making that up. It was like, sort of, I'm not exaggerating. It sounded really bad. There was a number of things about it that were just awful. <clears throat> and then I sort of was thinking about this and I realized that actually, you know, people respond to the song and the uh, the words to the song. That's mostly what they listen to. Yeah. We listen to all the product. We're, we're very kind of critical about all that stuff. But honestly, so this is the thing is that, you know, a good song will overcome bad production and bad recording and all kinds of horrible stuff. Good production will not overcome a bad song, conversely. I mean, hopefully you have both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good song and good production, you know. But if, if that's not the case, then the production is the one you can do without. So I think that's worth bearing in mind, too, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, last question, John. So now that you've been in business for yourself for a little while, what is the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Mm. Well, I think in this business, um, generally what I've found over the years is that if you, is that you have to, you have to do it all the time, but every once in a while you have to go out and actually go to shows and, go to things and see people. You don't necessarily get work out of it, but you have to sort of see and be seen. And what I found is, because I have a tendency to not do that, because I honestly, I mean, if I'm quite honest about it, I don't really like going to shows at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always too loud. <laughs> yeah. It's like you stand around and your back starts hurting up a couple of hours and it's like that. But um, I found that if I stop going out about two or three months later, I'll stop working. Oh. That's basically what happens. I mean, for me anyway. Yeah. So and it seems to be there's some sort of mysterious law of the universe that is like if you, you know, people just sort of forget about you. And I suppose that's what uh, Facebook in theory accomplishes is that you can throw something up there every once in a while just to let people know you're still around. But uh, basically, I think that's, that's kind of my advice. And of course, LA is like built for that. You know, that's what everyone does. That's the reason why everyone goes out. Yeah, yeah, right, right. All There's right. Plenty of no one will, no one will, uh, you know, criticize you for, for going out and handing out your business cards, you know. To find out more about John, go to John Greenham. Dot com. That's John, J-O-H-N-G-R-E-E-N-H-A-M, all one word, John Greenham, 
Com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh,